Well, today we are continuing in our new sermon series, Epic, Great God, Great Stories, uh, by looking at the second part of the story that we started last week, uh, the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. And I want to start out today by reminding you uh, where we left off in the story. Uh, Last week, we discovered in chapter 6 that this story is set uh, in a time when Israel, God's people, had turned away from God, uh, they were worshiping false gods, and they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And, And because of this, God had allowed them to be oppressed by their enemies uh, the Midianites. And, and um, so, so they were living under the oppression of the Midianites, which was actually the discipline of God. And God had allowed this to happen to them for the purpose of trying to get them to turn back to him. And we found last week that throughout the Bible, in fact, you could really say that the, the message of the Bible from beginning to end, what God is doing throughout the scripture is he is inviting us Uh, back to himself. He's inviting unfaithful people to return to him. And so so God, uh, in the story last week, is inviting unfaithful Israel uh, to return to him. And finally, the the pressure built to where Israel cried out to God. Uh, God graciously heard their cry and set in motion a plan to free them from the oppression of the Midianites. The plan included selecting Gideon, Uh, from the smallest tribe in Israel, who considered himself to be the least in his family, to be the person who would lead Israel to throw off the oppression of Midian. Before Gideon could lead Israel to victory, he had to tear down the idols that his family and his clan were worshiping. He did so, and that leads us to the end of chapter 6 up to chapter 7, where we will pick up today. If you're interested in uh, learning some of the lessons that we drew out of last week's story, I'd invite you to uh, check out the sermon online and uh, catch up if you weren't able to be here uh, last week. Now, one of the things at the end of chapter 6 that we did not cover last week is that in response to God's confirmation that he wanted to use him to, uh, to lead Israel to victory, Gideon had put out a call to gather the men of Israel together to go and fight against Midian, and 32,000 men had responded to the call. Uh, Also at the end of chapter 6 that we didn't uh, look at last week, Gideon asked God for a confirming sign uh, that he intended to give them the victory, and God provided that confirming sign. So this leads us to chapter 7. Uh, Gideon and his 32,000 men are preparing to go to war. And here's what we find in chapter 7, verse 1, reading through verse 8. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. 
There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So Gideon has 32,000 men who have responded to the call to go fight Midian. It sounds like a pretty good turnout. It sounds like a pretty sizable army, but there is a problem even with the army this size, and that is we learn in chapter 8 that the size of the Midianite army was 135,000 men. So Israel is, right from the outset, outnumbered four to one, which makes it very interesting that God says to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. You can imagine Gideon's confusion. Excuse me, God, too many men. Have you, have you looked down in the valley at, at the Midianites and how many they have? But for what God was going to do, it was too many. And God told Gideon why it was too many. It was because even outnumbered four to one, Israel had good enough odds that if they won the battle, they were unlikely to give God the credit for saving them. Instead, what they would do, God knew, is that they would boast in their own strength. And so God tells Gideon that he needs to offer that anyone who is afraid to go fight may leave and return home, and immediately 22,000 take him up on it. 22,000. Would, would we have been in the 22,000? I might have. I might have. But they go, they go home. And now they're outnumbered almost 14 to 1. And God has another message for Gideon. There are still too many men. God, please. There really aren't too many. Gideon has a lot of people over there. But God says to Gideon, too many men. And so God gives Gideon an exercise to put the 10,000 men through. He was to take them to the water and invite them to drink. And those that scooped the water up in their hands and then I lapped it from their hands like a dog, and I'll spare you a demonstration of that. Uh, <laughs> they were to be placed in one group, and then those who kneeled down by the water and basically put their mouths directly into the water were to be placed in another group. 300 lapped with their hands, 9,700 put their mouths directly in the water. Surely, Gideon thought... God will give me the 9,700. 10,000 was just slightly more than what God wanted me to have. But that's not the way it was to be. God gave Gideon the 300. And now they are facing odds of 450 to 1. Now, how many of you know you are not winning a fight where there's you against 450 others. 
Like really, we could take the toughest guy in this room right now, me, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, probably not me, and, uh, and put him up against 450 third graders. And he's probably still not winning. Like it, it just doesn't, you don't win against 450 to one odds. It's just not happening. But these are the odds that God wanted. And so what God did is he took Gideon's army from too small to ridiculously too small and said, now we're good. With these 300 men, I will save you. So the army is reduced from small to ridiculously small. And then the next section of scripture tells us of God reassuring Gideon that he's going to give them the victory. Let's pick up at the second half of verse 8 and read through verse 15. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. I, I love how God tells Gideon that he's going to give the Midianites into their hands, which is just a Bible way of saying he's going to give them victory. But then God tells Gideon, if you're still afraid... You can sneak down to the Midianite camp and you can listen in on the conversations that are happening there. And immediately, the story tells us that Gideon and his servant pack up and head down to listen in on what's going on. Gideon is saying to God, you are absolutely right. I am still scared senseless. And so I will take you up on that little offer right there. And off they go. And of course, we shouldn't be too hard on Gideon about this. He is facing 450 to 1 odds. And so they sneak outside the Midianite camp. They overhear the one man telling his friend the dream. And they overhear the interpretation of the dream, which is basically Gideon is going to defeat us. Gideon hears this knowing he only has 300 men back in his camp. But the Midianites are already concluding that the deck is stacked against them and they're going to be defeated. And so at this news, Gideon returns to his men reassured that God is going to give them the victory. So the story so far, a too small army is reduced to ridiculously too small. In spite of how small the army is, God has now reassured Gideon, the fearful leader. And now the next several verses tell us about a very odd battle plan. Let's pick up at verse 16. 
Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So this is the plan for 300 to defeat 135,000. Trumpets and torches and shouting voices. That's the plan. And they do as instructed. And the Midianites remember that they already are convinced they're going to be defeated. They are so stricken by fear that they run around, they cry out in fear, they are so fearful and they are so overcome by confusion that they turn their swords on each other and begin killing each other. What an oddly effective battle plan. There is one reason that this plan was effective. One reason only. God caused it to be. There is nothing about that plan that sounds particularly appealing. There is nothing about that plan in the natural that really makes much sense at all. I mean, you can argue about, you know, a lot of noise and, you know, bright lights and all of that. But really, there's just not much about that plan that's very persuasive from a natural perspective. It was effective because the Lord caused it to be. The Lord caused the Midianites to turn on each other. So this is the story. A too small army reduced to ridiculously too small. A fearful leader reassured an oddly effective battle plan. That's the story, and here are a few lessons that we can learn from the story. There, there may be more, but th- these are the ones I wanted to share today. First of all, we learn that God is patient and reassuring to those who are fearful of their assignment. If you go back through the whole story, you see that on at least three occasions, God reassured fearful Gideon. In chapter 6, when the angel of the Lord first comes to Gideon, he asks for a sign, and and the angel consumes the offering uh, that Gideon had placed on, on the altar. At the end of chapter 6, he reassured him again, actually twice, It's the whole story that many of you are familiar with. If you're not, read chapter 6 this week with the whole story of the fleece. You know, make the fleece uh, damp and let everything around it be dry. God does that. Okay, great, God. Now I want you to do it in reverse. Make the fleece dry and everything around it damp. And and so God confirms his his will. He reassures him twice at the end of chapter 6. And then in today's text... We read of God telling Gideon, go down to the Midianite camp, listen in on what they're saying, and you're going to see that I'm going to deliver them into your hands. So three occasions, 
Four specific confirmations. God reassures Gideon. God is patient with fearful people. He really is. If God is calling you to something that has you feeling a bit fearful, God understands. He, he understands that the, the things he calls us to do, they, they put us into situations where the outcome is never entirely in our control. And he understands that this creates fear in us. If God really is calling you to something, what I believe is going to happen is that no matter how fearful you are of it, you're not going to be able to shake the feeling that you're supposed to do it. And so unable to shake that feeling, you'll keep pressing into God and God will patiently work with you and God is going to offer you enough reassurances that eventually you will get to the place where you can say, yes, with God, I can do this. And so if you're here today and you've been reluctant to do something God has called you to do, I want to assure you, God is not angry with you. But if you cannot get away from the feeling that you're supposed to do it, you need to keep pressing into God. You need to keep inquiring of God. You need to keep wrestling with God. And I believe that God is going to graciously reassure you enough that you're eventually going to step out in faith and do what God is directing you to do. And here's something that you need to make peace with, though. You are never going to know the outcome of the things that God calls you to at the point where you step into what he's called you to. You always have to step out by faith. You, you never know the outcome when you respond to the call. And so you might as well embrace the risk. You might as well embrace the life of faith and do the things that God has been patiently encouraging you to do. Here's the second lesson. God is always working in ways that surpass our understanding. God is always doing things behind the scenes that we can't see. Gideon had no idea that while God was reducing his army, while God was providing him with this really odd battle plan, that God was also over in the Midianite camp, causing the men in that camp to have dreams, causing men in that camp to interpret the dreams in a way that convinced them they were going to be defeated. Gideon had no idea that God was over in the Midianite camp sowing the seeds of defeat in the enemy the whole time that he was fretting about how small his army was. We must always remember that what we see God doing is not all that God's doing. Amen. What we see God doing is not all that God's doing. He's always up to all kinds of stuff that we have no idea about. You have no idea how God is working behind the scenes to open up doors for you to walk into the opportunities that he's calling you to. Those of you who are getting ready to go to college, maybe you're already in college, you have no idea the, the person that God has set up for you to meet while you're in college that's going to be the key to opening up an opportunity for you to step in to the calling that God has for you. 
Those of you looking for a change in your career, you have no idea the chance meeting that God is arranging for you that's going to provide an opportunity that you could have never dreamed of in your wildest dreams. Those of you looking for an opening to talk to your neighbor about God, you have no idea what's going on within the four walls of your neighbor's house that's going to cause them in the not too distant future to see you outside, to run across the street and to say, hey, you're a Christian, right? I have a question that I want to ask you. We have no idea what God is up to. I've shared this story a number of times, so for those of you who have been around here a while, I apologize, but for the benefit of those of you who are newer and have never heard it, uh, God worked in this kind of way in, in my life and in Michelle's life in opening up doors for me to become a pastor. I was 33 years old uh, when I became a pastor, which is about a decade uh, later than a lot of people who desire to, uh, to do that with their lives. I had been encouraged through much of my life by well-meaning people that that's what I should do. I had been told by friends of mine that if they ever, uh, you know, got a church that they would lead, I would be the first person they would hire onto their staff, and then they would get their churches, and I would never hear from them. And, uh, and uh, so we were going to uh, Vineyard Columbus, and as a part of VLI, I was assigned to help out the Sunday services, and a man named John Moriarty was the evangelism pastor there, and even though my name was always on the sheet of paper telling John why I was there and what I was doing, John could never remember my name, never understood that I was actually supposed to be there. One time he was so insulting that he came up to me as I was performing my, my job that I was on the paper saying I was supposed to do. And John says to me, like, like I'm five years old, oh, were you wanting to help us today? <laughs> yep, I just came to church and decided I was going to come over here and start doing this job. Nobody asked me. I just, I just am doing it. Then John left and planted a church in Pickerington, and even though my interactions with him to that point had not been very good, Michelle and I decided to go to the church plant in Pickerington, and in doing so, I said to Michelle, and she agreed this might be the end of our dreams to, <laughs> to get into uh, uh, pastoral work, because we actually know some people who are willing to help us up here at Vineyard Columbus, but we're going to go and help the guy who just can't ever remember who we are. The first time we went, John recognized us, you know, facially, and um, he tried to pretend like he knew us. He, he walked up and put his arm around me and said, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> and I usually try to be a little bit more tactful, but I was just kind of put off by it, and I said, you don't have any idea who I am, do you? That guy gave me my first opportunity to be a pastor. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, honestly, we thought that by going to that church, it very likely meant that we lose the opportunity to, to see the doors open that we want to have open. But we think God is calling us to do it. And then God uses this man who could never remember my name, always acted like I was inserting myself somewhere where I shouldn't have been, even though I was supposed to be there. 
and he uses him to open up the doors uh, for ministry. Here's the point. God is always doing stuff behind the scenes that you have no idea he's doing. You may think you are at a dead end, but you don't know what God has been up to. And you don't know what's going to open up for you. So you can trust this. When God calls you to something, what you see him doing isn't all he's doing. He is working in ways you cannot see to fulfill his purpose for your life. Here's our third lesson. Our role in the assignments God gives us is to do as instructed. But victory always belongs to the Lord. Throughout the whole story, Gideon's role was simple. Do what God tells him to do. Tear down the idols. Gather an army. Reduce the size of the army. Reduce it more. Tell your men about that awesome battle plan where they blow horns, hold torches, and yell real loud. God's, uh, the responsibility that God gave Gideon was you do as I instruct. On the surface, none of those things appeared to be enough to bring about victory. In the natural, there is no way those things bring about victory. And this was by God's design. Because God wants it clear when the victory comes that it came by his hand, not ours. And because victory always belongs to the Lord, we can rest assured that victory is achievable no matter how overmatched we might be. God will accomplish his purpose no matter how small the army. If there is anything that I've learned in nearly 15 years now of being a pastor, and especially in the 12 years, nearly 12 years of being the lead pastor of this church, it's that the problems facing the big C church, meaning the whole church, the problems facing this local church, and the problems facing individual Christians are way too big for me. And they are way too big for you. And they are way too big for all of us together. So here's what this means. Anytime we have a victory, anytime a marriage is restored, anytime an unsaved person gets saved, anytime someone struggling with addiction gets free, anytime someone with an unbiblical view about some aspect of life accepts and submits what the Bible says, anytime the church welcomes new members, anytime the church grows, it's not because we knew exactly how to bring about those results. It's not because we were so capable, so clever, so gifted. No. It's because God gave the victory. Victory always belongs to the Lord. We do our best to be obedient to the instruction that God gives. And as long as we are in obedient to follow his instructions, whatever success we have, it belongs to the Lord. And there's something else that's very comforting about this, actually. Likewise, when we go through seasons where things are not going the way we want, we are not seeing the fruit in our lives that we desire we wouldn't describe this season as a particularly victorious one. 
As long as we're still being obedient to God's instructions, we can rest in whatever's happening, knowing that victory belongs to the Lord. The only time we need to get uncomfortable about results not looking the way we hope is when we're not being obedient to what God is instructing us to do. But as long as we're being obedient, as long as we're responding to what God is instructing us to the best that we are able to understand it, we can rest assured that both in seasons when we don't see the results we want and in seasons that we would describe as seasons of victory, it is all in God's hands because victory belongs to the Lord. And here's the fourth lesson. It's the reason uh, why it's so important to understand that any victory we receive actually belongs to the Lord. It's his victory that he lets us share in. Here's the lesson. God cares very much about his glory. God cares very much about his glory. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Doesn't want to give up his glory. He's going to give the victory. He does not want them taking credit for the victory that he gave. He wants the credit for the victory. Chapter 7, verse 7, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Chapter 7, verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The position of every follower of God is that it is God who gives the victory, so it is God who deserves the glory. And that's the way God wants it. Because he is rightfully concerned about his glory. The creator and sustainer of everything that is. The only reason that you took your last breath. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He cares about his glory. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 5, Something that's both challenging, but at the same time liberating, if we'll actually embrace it, it applies to all of us who say we're his disciples. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And here's the part I really want you to hear. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Victory belongs to the Lord. And so all glory for the victory belongs to the Lord. So we have a great story. How God reduced this too small army to ridiculously too small. How God reassured a fearful leader. How God crafted an oddly effective battle plan. We, we have this story. A small army, a fearful leader, results in victory because God gives the victory. We have 
found some good lessons from the story to apply to our lives. And so we could leave the story at this point. Shout hallelujah if anyone here did that. And call it a day. Thank you, the few of you who got it and laughed. But there's more to the story. And since we're not going to spend a third week on it, I, I feel like I have to share it today, even though it's kind of a bummer. You can read about this in chapter 8. I'm simply going to share the highlights, or more accurately, the lowlights of the story. After this great victory, the people asked Gideon to rule over them. And he rightly declined, reminding them that God was their ruler. And then that's the high point for Gideon. And from there, it all goes downhill. It all goes downhill. Takes a turn for the worse. Yes, he declined to rule over the people, but he requested that the people give him gold that they took from plundering the Midianites. And with that gold, he made an ephod, which was basically a priestly garment, and he placed this ephod in his hometown of Ophrah. Chapter 8, verse 27 says, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. Listen to these words. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So God has delivered Gideon and Israel, and this man who was obedient to God and tore down the idols, tore down the Baal and the Asherah pole. He now builds a memorial to his victory and Israel begins to worship this memorial. The one who destroyed idol worship is now guilty of contributing to a new form of idol worship. Not only that, but even though Gideon declined to become king, he started living like a king. He took many wives and many concubines. He claimed for himself the privilege of kings. Our champion, our idol destroyer, now contributing to idolatry, living like a king, and when Gideon dies, Israel immediately returns to worshiping Baal. And one of Gideon's sons, an evil man named Abimelech, kills his 70 brothers. I mean, wrap your brain around that. Kills 70 of his brothers to secure power for himself. So in death, Gideon leaves his people in idolatry. Isn't that an awful story? I mean, wouldn't it have been better to quit before we went to chapter 8? Like, I really entertained. Let's just end the story at the victory and hope nobody ever reads chapter 8. <laughs> but it's part of the story. We don't really get the full picture if we don't grab, uh, uh, wrestle with this. And yet, in spite of all of this, here's something that's amazing. Gideon is listed 
in what is often referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. He's listed in Hebrews 11 among all the greatest heroes of the faith. Why? How? There's only one answer that I can come up with. There's only one answer why Gideon is listed in the Faith Hall of Fame. He is listed there because God is gracious. That's the only reason I can come up with. He is listed there because God only has fallible, messed up people to work with. That's all he's got. And I think he's listed there as an encouragement to all of us that even though we may serve God imperfectly, our lives can be remembered for our faith instead of our failures because God is gracious. Imperfect leaders, imperfect examples, imperfect champions. That's the best that we can hope for among fallen mankind. You see, the very best among us are a mixture of success and failure, faithfulness and unfaithfulness. The best person you know has probably let you down in a really significant way. If not you, you know they've let someone else down. The best person you know has definitely failed God. The most faithful person you've ever known had some season in their life when they were not faithful, when they were not a good example. Now what we hope, what we always hope, is that we get that part of our story out of the way early on and then we end well. But sometimes it doesn't go like that. Sometimes it goes like it does with Gideon. That, that people are real faithful early on and then somewhere later in life they, they mess it all up. They ruin their story. That there's something at the end of life where they just damage the story. The best Christian you've ever known was a fallible person who sometimes failed God. The world famous Christians, the the ones that we put on the pedestal and we think, man, they're the ones that we should aspire to be like. We really only think that because we don't know them that well. When When you get to know them, what you find out is they are imperfect people. It is a mature thing to realize that even the best people, the most faithful people are still imperfect. Gideon was an imperfect deliverer. He was an imperfect champion. But thankfully, we have a better champion than Gideon. We have one, we have one who has never let us down. You see, Gideon led his people to a temporary victory, but we have a champion who has provided a lasting, eternal victory for us. Gideon served faithfully for a season, and then he failed. He ruined his story. 
But we have a champion who has never failed, who has never done anything wrong, who has never ruined his story, who has never let us down. Every time we see the champions of the faith, the people that we look up to, exposed as unfaithful and imperfect, our hearts should actually not dwell on that, but our hearts should rejoice in knowing that we have a better champion, Jesus Christ, who never fails, who never lets us down, who doesn't just provide us with temporary victory, but provides us with a victory that's eternal. Let's stand